the sign that will be given of the covenant on every single male heir, every single male of Israel, is this sign of circumcision. On the eighth day, and so we learned this already when we were talking about Jesus um, in his birth, a newborn child will be taken and they would be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. But the reality was is that even if, if that was not the case for you, if some, something happened and you were not able to have that rite performed, or perhaps as an adult you came into the faith, you were a proselyte from another faith and you came into the Jewish faith later on, then you would still have to have that procedure done as an adult. And so you may remember there's a few places in Scripture where stuff like this happens. Um, when the Israelites are coming into the Promised Land and at first they, they're scared to go in and they refuse and then God causes them to, to be in exile and wander around the desert for 40 years until that generation dies out. You may not remember, but, but that no one is circumcised while they're in the wilderness. No one is circumcised during that whole 40 years um, sort of as a symbol of how the covenant has been broken. Right? The covenant is almost like it's in limbo right now until that generation of unfaithful people die off and a new generation comes and accepts what God has given to them. And then what happens is before they are allowed to enter the promised land and go in and, and conquer it, all the men who are now in their you know, 40s and 50s or whatever else, they all have to go through the rite of circumcision. And so immediately I think the case is this, man. We, we, we hear about this this, this right, um, and, it, and it, it brings up some interesting points for us, okay? And, and this is the first thing that I think we should think about. One, it's a, it's, the Bible calls this a sign of the covenant, right? But it is an incredibly private and intimate sign, all right? Um, it's not like some of the other signs that God has given his people to distinguish them as as his unique people, right? Ways that you could even distinguish between who is a Jewish person and who is not at a glance. So, for example, the law tells us um, that the, the Jewish men were not supposed to cut the hair on the sides of their heads. Essentially, their sideburns, they were supposed to let their sideburns grow um, their whole lives. Uh, when India and I were in, in Israel um, back uh, a few weeks ago, um, you noticed it everywhere, right? There were these Orthodox Jews um, walking down the streets, including young kids, including young teenage boys or whatever. And some of them would, like, have their heads shaved but they would still have those curly um, locks um, coming down from the sides of their head because they're keeping that Old Testament sign. Well, that, that sign identifies them as a Jewish person right away. Like you can see them coming from a mile away and go, this person must be of the Jewish faith or else they wouldn't cut their hair like that. There's all kinds of things like that in other cultures as well, right? Very open very obvious signs that connect them to a, a faith or a people group or something like that. And so we can think about the Brazilian practice where the uh, people in certain tribes will put discs in their, in their lips and it, and it extends out. And so you see it, you notice it immediately. Um, African tribes that do the neck rings, right, to, to give the impression of an extended neck. Um, Polynesian culture where they have these ritual tattoos, right, that are specifically, they have a look and they have a meaning, they have a design. All of those things are very obvious, Right, as you could see somebody coming down the road and know those things immediately, but obviously, circumcision is different than that. Right? Um, nobody is going to notice that you're circumcised, at least if you're living right. Um, okay, um, people aren't going to see this this sign, and so you might at first go, "What kind of sign does God give us that is hidden?" 
right, that no one in ordinary circumstances would ever see. Why did he choose that as the sign instead of something much more obvious? Well, I think there's a reason for that. We'll get to it in just a second. Secondly, another thing that we have to, again, recognize is as, as even though this procedure is, is still very common in the Western world, right, not for religious reasons, reasons but cultural and, and hygienic reasons, um, we should still recognize that, man, it's a weird symbol, okay? Like, it is a weird thing to just pick this as something to do, okay? It is, it is painful. Uh, it is bloody. Um, there is a, literally, a body augmentation that is going on here, right? You are taking something from your body and removing it um, for, for a religious or cultural reason. That's, that's weird, okay? That's something that is odd. But, again, there is a reason for that. There's a reason that God is using this as a sign, and each of these elements of, of the sign of circumcision are actually, I think, pointing towards the symbol of the circumcision. What does that circumcision actually symbolize? Okay, Because the reality is, is it is both a sign and a symbol. And so the distinction there would be this, is that a sign indicates specifically, very specifically, very concretely what it is pointing to, okay? And so God has said, this act will be the sign that you have made a covenant with me, right? That you are part of my covenant people. But at the same time, the sign is also a symbol. That is, it has a deeper meaning, it represents something else. It is a sign of the covenant, but it is also a symbol of another aspect of the covenant. And what I'm telling you is that that thing that it is symbolizing is the act of repentance. That circumcision is pointing us to the idea of repentance. And this is, this is some of the ways that we know that, okay? Because very quickly, this is what we see in the scriptures. Very quickly, the Bible begins to talk about circumcision, not just in terms of the physical act and the physical right, but it starts using the language of circumcision in a very different way. And so, for example, in Leviticus, again, very beginning of the Bible, first five books of the Bible, right? In, in Leviticus, uh, chapter 26, it says this, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery, that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land, right? And so essentially what God is saying in Leviticus is he's saying, you people have sinned against me and what I want you to do is circumcise your hearts. That is, turn from your sin and return to me, repentance. Deuteronomy has a similar idea. Deuteronomy 10, behold to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Right. So that's a restatement of the covenant. God is saying, I chose Abraham. I chose your fathers. I made a deal with them. I made a covenant with them. That's the covenant. But then he says this, circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart. 
and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and does not take bribes. Right? And so again, we see this idea of, this, of him saying, turn from sin, return to me, and circumcise your hearts. And that same idea continues to play out throughout the Old Testament. All the way up to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is prophesying at the collapse of, of, of the Jewish kingdom. And he says again, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And again, he's pointing to that idea, right? He's pointing to the idea of saying, Circumcision is a symbol. It is, it, is definitely a, it is definitely a sign. It means something in itself. It is a sign of the covenant. But it is also a symbol of something that is connected to the covenant, and that is this idea of repentance. So what's the picture there, right? Well, we talked about last week. God, we talked about how God is faithful, right? That, that um, when we were looking in, in chapter 15, when we saw the covenant ceremony where, if you remember, the animals were taken and they were split down the middle and they were, they were set apart um, so that there was a pathway down the t- between the two sides. Um, and then what happened in that story is that God walks through. Only God walks through. Abraham doesn't walk through. Only God walks through. And that indicated something. It indicated that God knew that we were incapable of living up to the covenant that we were entering into, but that he would take responsibility for the covenant being upheld, right? Even at great personal cost. He would suffer the punishment for the breaking of the covenant, all right? And so that's that's what we saw last week. But remember something. Just because we are bad at living up to the covenant doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to live up to the covenant. That is the deal that we have made. That is the that is the um, what the covenant has stipulated that we would live new and different lives. And so, interestingly, in in that passage in Deuteronomy that references the circumcision of our hearts, just above that section, it basically spells out what our end of the deal is. Even though, again, we don't live up to it. Verse 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 12 of Deuteronomy says this, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Okay, And so that's our end of the covenant, right? That is what we are called to live up to. And so when we mess up, when we get distracted in terms of the covenant, or lazy, or rebellious, or worldly, or fleshly, we are called to repent, to circumcise our hearts, to cut away the sin and remove it from our lives, right? To do the private, intimate, painful work of owning up to our own sin and returning to faithfulness to God. Romans chapter 2 kind of lays out the connection between circumcision and repentance for us. In Romans chapter 2, now he's talking about the Jewish people, but it applies to us too. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. Listen to that. Paul sort of jumps the sign, and he goes straight to the symbol, and he says, circumcision is not about the outward sign and the physical sign. It is about what's going on on the inside. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His Praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, and so, so Paul points us and says, "Man, circumcision is 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 not only also about repentance; it's primarily about repentance." Now, again, make no mistake, right? We are weak, and we are fools. And if it were not for God's faithfulness to us and faithfulness to the covenant, we would have no hope, right? We would we would be we would be um, up the creek. Okay, but that does not mean that we throw up our hands and say, cool, uh, God says he's got this thing, so I'm going to live however I want to. God says he's going to take care of the covenant, so I'm just going to continue to do and live however I please, right? He does have it, and he cares about the way you live now. And we are called to love and to honor and to obey God. Now, here's the deal. We're going to shift gears a little bit here because I'm going to ask a question. So why is this specifically important for us in our, in our current moment? Obviously, it's important to us because these are symbols of the gospel, right? They are, they are glimpses of the gospel before the gospel was fully seen in the coming of Jesus Christ. But it's particularly important for us right now in this moment for our nation, for our world, dealing with the coronavirus, okay? And, and so here's one of the things that I've noticed, um, and maybe you have too. It's, it's interesting, usually when some sort of big national disaster happens, um, there is a certain group of tele-evangelist, talking head types uh, that are very quick to tell us whose fault this is, right? Um, they're very quick to call down God's judgment on a certain group or something like that. And so, for example, in Katrina, you know, it's, well, God is, is, is judging that godless city of New Orleans, and they're all getting what they deserve. Um, or even 9-11, God is judging our nation and those godless folks who live in New York and, and have all the, the stuff that goes on there, right? Um, there's a certain element of, of, of people that loves to place blame, right? We love to, um, we love to, explain why bad things are happening to other people and not to us, okay? Um, but I think you've seen less of that this time around. At least I haven't seen much of it this time around. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. It's because nobody knows exactly where this thing is going to go yet, right? We're not sure the extent of this thing. Um, we're still waiting to see that. And I think people are reticent to start calling down judgment and saying, well, you're getting what you deserve because they're not sure but what they won't be the person who gets it yet, right? And so they're, they're holding back um, some of those remarks until they figure out the extent of this thing and know that it's, it's gone. Uh, it's awkward to say that God, God is judging us and then you end up being the one that gets sick, right? Um, but here's the interesting thing. Jesus actually specifically tells us about what our mindset should be in terms of, of thinking about judgment and in terms of thinking about um, the, 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 the worthiness of, of, of people that, that get sick or, or that bad things happen to or whatever. Jesus actually gives us a specific parable, you could say, or, or a teaching that explains it perfectly, okay? And so if you've got your, again, your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13 real quick. 
Flip over to Luke chapter 13. We're going to shift gears and just jump to this passage for just a second. So Luke chapter 13. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, So what he's referring to is that there were some Galilean people who were uh, arrested and executed by Pilate and that he actually took their blood and used it in the sacrifices to, to some god or something, basically treating them, those, those people, as if they were sacrificial animals or something like that. Um, so then he goes on and says this, verse 2, And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay? Now, um, I'm, I'm kind of looking here at our, our feed. I'm thinking maybe we've lost the Facebook feed. Does it look like we're still going? Is it good? Okay, cool. All right. Um, um, what is Jesus getting at in that passage? Right? Do people who fall in the midst of disaster deserve judgment more than people who don't? That's the question. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you know what? We all deserve judgment. We all have it coming. All right? And then yet, at the same time, Jesus doesn't say, cool, well, because we've all got it coming, you should just reject the idea that God is bringing judgment in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the opposite. What does he say? He says, but if you don't repent you will all likewise perish. Here's the deal. Death and tragedy are not a time to look and say, like Job's friends did, hey, he must have done something specific to deserve what has happened to him. No, on the contrary, death and tragedy are the opportunities for us to say, there is no reason why these things shouldn't happen to me also. Times of trial, times of suffering, are supposed to be wake-up calls for us. Because they are real. right? They are visceral. They are obvious. They are in our faces, and they are in our guts, and they are scary, and they are painful. We look to the news, and we see all these things happening all around our world and the difficulties of all of them, and it is a stark reality for us, right? And the, every single time we enter into a state of, of suffering, whether that is a personal suffering or it's a global suffering, God is bringing us back to first principles. You are weak. You are fragile. Ultimately, you are not in control of many aspects of your own life. You live and you move and you take your next breath by God's mercy and by God's mercy alone. And so that means what should we do? What should we do in a time like this? Well, the answer is... Like I said, back to basics. 
We should believe and we should repent. We should trust God and we should circumcise our hearts. Because again, remember the covenant. We should believe, right? We should have faith in God. That God will do as he has done and and he will do what is necessary to hold us to himself. But at the same time, we should remember that what he is also calling us to do is to repent. To live lives to live the lives of those who are faithfully seeking after God in all of our life, right? And remember that when we stumble, when we mess up, then we get back up and we go to God and we say we are sorry, we confess our sins, and then we continue to follow and move forward. But I'm afraid what happens in most of our lives is that we get into a situation where we have allowed certain kinds of sins, certain little things um, to come into our lives, and we have gotten used to those sins. We, 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 we live with them and just go with them um, and don't try to uh, address them because we feel like, ah, eh, they're not really big enough that I need to change my life for or something like that, but at the same time, they're, they're big enough um, that they continue to hinder our prayers, right? They continue to kind of stick in our heads and, and, and upset our relationship with God. God is calling us in a time of tribulation like this to repent. And so, again, I think this is the case, and we, and we all need to hear this because we are all prone to it. It is right, when you listen to, I don't know if you've listened to any other sermons um, of other people who, are, who have been preaching during this time, man, it is right that they would be calling us to trust in God, right? It is, it is right that they would be calling us to rest in God. It is right that we should, that we should use this as a time to say, um, God, we trust you. Um, we know that you love us. We know that you're going to care for us no matter the circumstance. Those are, those are good and right messages for this time. That's a, that's a, that's a back-to-basics kind of message, to trust in God. But there's a, there's a flip side of that coin, too. We cannot just believe it is a time for repentance as well. And if all this time of, of, of quarantine and isolation does, if all it does is gives us a chance to sleep in and binge Netflix and catch up on our reading, then we will have wasted what God intended to teach us by it. We will have demonstrated just how numb and how oblivious we are to the calling of God on our lives. And so I would say this, repentance is an essential response to the gospel. To agree with God about your sin, to turn away from it and turn to Christ is how we rightly respond to God's election, to God's grace, and to God's mercy in our lives. And so right now, we are going to um, just go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, we are going to uh, kind of shift, and, and although we've obviously already had a time of repentance in, in our service, um, I want us to have uh, another time of, of that, um, another time where we turn to the Lord and say, God, will you show me the places in my life that I have fallen short? God, will you awaken, awaken my heart so that I recognize the places that I need to turn back to you, to recognize that I am not who I am supposed to be. God, that I have let so much garbage come into my life and that I'm just comfortable with it. It just sits there. This is an opportunity. This time of trial and time of testing and time of uncertainty is a time for us to return to God and say, God, cleanse me. God, show me the places that I have fallen short. 
and restore to me the joy of my salvation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now uh, and, and, and pray those things together. Father God, help us not waste our times of trial. God, help us not waste times of suffering. Help us not look around at the difficult situations that we find ourselves in and, and the fear and the uncertainty, God, and, and leave those things as, as empty um, and, and just experiences um, that, that we are going through. God, use these things to chasten us. Use these things um, to temper us. Use these things to refine us. God, let us recognize our mortality, our weakness. Um, God, let us recognize the fact that there are forces in this world that are beyond our control and that at any moment we could be called to give an account for the lives that we have lived. God, help us to recognize those places in our hearts that, that we have hidden from you. And God, help us to turn. Help us to repent, to agree with you on those places, to agree with what your word says about those sins, God, and to um, reject them and to turn from them and to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, to trust in Jesus Christ to fill us and guide us and walk alongside with us and enable us to live in holiness as we walk through this life. God, we need those things. We know that in all times of trial, you are calling us to repent. Not us specifically in terms of one individual somewhere. You aren't just talking to um, uh, one person because their sin is greater than the rest of us. God, in, in a time of, of literally worldwide um, uh, difficulty and trial, God, you are calling us all to a closer relationship with you. And that has to include a turn and a coming to grips and a coming to to a, a right understanding of the sin we have in our lives. So God, help us to do that. Um, God, crucify the sin in our lives. God, help us to see it and turn to have real contrition and sorrow. God, to mortify our sin uh, and want to destroy it so that we don't live lives um, that dishonor you and your gospel. Uh, we thank you. God, we praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ.